It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. In Jonathan Swift's classic book, Gulliver's Travels, there's a part where Gulliver discovers that the inhabitants of the land called Lugnag have the ability to live forever. These inhabitants, known as the Strollbrugs, are born with a red dot on their foreheads, which indicates their immortality. At first, Gulliver thinks this is the most wondrous ability, but soon grows horrified when he realizes that although the Strollbrugs never die, They also continue to age. The thought that these immortal beings will continue to eternally shrivel away over time is a nightmare beyond imagination to Gulliver. In fiction, there seems to be very little middle ground about immortality. It's always either a blessing or a curse. In many of our stories of immortals, the person who never dies eventually becomes jaded and despondent about their life everlasting. As they watch everyone around them grow old and die, When Odysseus chooses to return home to his beloved Penelope, rather than remain immortal on an island with the beautiful nymph Calypso, it's generally considered a wise decision. In the picture of Dorian Gray, the main character remains eternally youthful, growing jaded and bitter while his portrait continues to age and becomes grotesque. Yet despite immortality's apparent drawbacks, it seems like some people can't stop seeking it. Sometime in the 4th century BC, legend has it that Alexander the Great discovered a healing river of paradise. The idea that there is some mystical spring containing water with remarkable healing abilities is one that has persisted throughout the centuries. One of the most famous legends of all involves the Spanish conquistador Ponce de Leon, who is thought to have accompanied Christopher Columbus on his second voyage to the New World in 1493. In 1508, Ponce de Leon was granted royal permission to colonize the island we now know of as Puerto Rico. He became the island's first governor, but was soon pushed out in a power struggle with Columbus's son Diego. It's interesting to note that although in the years that followed Ponce de Leon continued to discover new lands in the name of Spain, such as the island of Bimini, the one thing most modern historians seem to agree on that he didn't find, and more importantly, wasn't even looking for, was the fabled Fountain of Youth. In 1513, he led an expedition that anchored off the eastern coast of a new land he named La Florida. He spent the next eight years journeying up and down the coast, skirmishing with the natives the entire time until finally one shot him dead with an arrow in 1521. The stories of Ponce de Leon seeking the legendary Fountain of Youth don't actually begin appearing in his personal history until several decades later. In 1535, Gonzalo Fernandez de Oveo y Valdez began telling people Ponce de Leon was seeking the Fountain of Youth as a cure for his impotence. This was in direct contradiction to the fact that Ponce de Leon had several children. In 1601, the Spanish king's chief historian, Antonio de Herrera y Tordesillas, wrote a detailed account of Ponce de Leon's first voyage in which he referred in passing to the conquistador's quest for the Fountain of Youth. 
It wouldn't be until after the Spanish gave up control of Florida in 1819 that the legend really took shape. Famous writers like Washington Irving began writing about Ponce de Leon's vanity and his quest for eternal youth. Artists began to portray Ponce de Leon in paintings and sculptures as a mythic explorer on a romantic quest for the fabled fountain. But sadly, as far as anyone can tell, the quest for the fountain of youth was just a fantasy. As far as modern scientists know, there is no magic cure for aging. Not yet, anyway. There's a surprisingly limited amount we actually know about aging. Scientists believe there is no specific aging gene, merely ordinary genes that break down and develop problems over time. For instance, some of our cells just stop dividing at some point in our lives, although scientists are still up in the air as to exactly when or why this happens. According to current scientific thinking, some of the cellular breakdown that occurs in the aging process is actually similar to the oxidizing process of rust. There are some maverick scientists like Aubrey de Grey who believe that aging is a process that could potentially be slowed and even eliminated altogether. De Grey has given lectures describing the potential for humans to live for hundreds, even thousands of years. Most mainstream scientists scoff at such an idea. But not everyone does, though. De Grey has received substantial venture capital backing from wealthy investors like PayPal's co-founder Peter Thiel to study whether or not it's really possible to live forever. But what if, centuries ago, someone else already discovered the secret to life everlasting? Back during the 18th century, there was a mysterious count that many people believe discovered the secret of immortality. There are even people who believe he might still be alive somewhere today. I'm Nate Hale, reporting to you live from my recording studio inside the TARDIS. And this is The Conspirators. He was known as the Count of St. Germain, and there's a lot we don't know about him. He was definitely not a saint, and it's very possible he wasn't a count either. The most legitimate estimates we have say he was born around 1710, although some stories push that number back as far as 1690, and sometimes even a lot further than that, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. Numerous sightings of the man were recounted by a number of credible sources throughout the 18th century. Yet during each recorded story, the Count always appeared to be about 40 years old. From 1737 to 1742, he was in Persia studying alchemy. In 1743, he showed up in England during the Jacobite Revolution. It was during this time that English historian and politician Horace Walpole wrote that the Count of St. Germain had been arrested in London on suspicion of espionage, although he was later released without charge. Fun fact, Horace Walpole is the author of one of the earliest known horror novels, The Castle of Otranto, but I digress. It was in a letter to a London diplomat named Horace Mann that Walpole wrote about what a remarkable and confounding individual the Count was. He noted that the Count refused to give his real name, but it was difficult to discount him as a fraud or a lunatic because of his many amazing abilities. The Count could sing like an angel, play the violin and harpsichord like a virtuoso, and even wrote music that the finest composers in the land envied. During his life, he wrote many musical compositions. This included at least 40 Italian arias, 7 solos for violin, and 6 trios for violin. 
In fact, two of his compositions are currently in the British Museum's collection. Among the many wealthy elites he is said to have performed for during this time was Frederick the Great, the King of Prussia. After leaving England, the Count reportedly spent some time in Vienna before traveling to Edinburgh in 1745. In 1755, it's believed that he went to India, where the legend has it that he hobnobbed with Indian royalty and continued to study the mysteries of the ancients. After that, he traveled to France, and it's there that the Count of St. Germain's legend really took off. By most accounts, he could speak as many as a dozen languages fluently. He was perfectly ambidextrous, and you could actually hold two pages of text written with each hand up to the light and see that they were completely identical. It was evident to anyone who met him that he had money, although the exact source of his fortune is a mystery. He would often appear in the royal court adorned in fine silks and festooned with exquisite gold and jewels. It was none other than the legendary Italian explorer and renowned lover Giacomo Casanova who wrote about meeting the Count of St. Germain at a fancy dinner in Paris in 1757. During this dinner, rather than eat, the Count spoke throughout the length of the meal, regaling the dinner guests on any number of subjects. This was pretty common behavior for the Comte de St. Germain. He was rarely ever seen consuming food in public, telling people that he only consumed small quantities of lean chicken or bland oatmeal. He never drank anything other than a mysterious tea that he made himself by adding drops of a colored liquid he carried with him in a small vial to water. On a personal level, the Count was considered a total charmer and probably could have been quite the ladies' man if he had so chosen. Except it was widely believed he remained celibate throughout his life. He was funny, personable, and engaging. It seemed like there was no subject the Count didn't know something about. He was a scholar, linguist, musician, and chemist. He claimed to have mastered the ancient art of alchemy, the legendary mystical practice of transformation, something which he demonstrated to remarkable effect. Stories told of the Count's ability to change lead into gold and with his ability to transform precious gemstones from their natural state into something even better. It was claimed he could make pearls grow to enormous sizes, and he had actually perfected a technique to melt several gemstones together into one large stone. One story goes that King Louis XV had a large diamond that, while being very expensive, also had a massive flaw down the middle. He asked the Count if he could fix the gem. The Count examined the diamond, then told the King to give him a month, and he could repair it. Good to his word, the Count appeared again before the King a month later, with the diamond in hand. The gem was slightly smaller than it had been before, but the flaw was gone. The king gave the count a suite of rooms at the royal chateau of Chambord in Touraine, and a hundred thousand francs to construct a laboratory. It was in these labs that the count continued his study of alchemy and the creation of colorful dyes that would be used in the richest of French fabrics. The count was known to create colorful cosmetics that he gave freely to the women of the French court. He was also known to be a remarkable artist in his own right, and many other contemporary painters would try unsuccessfully to get him to reveal the secrets of how he was able to create such brilliant hues in his paints. While in the court of Versailles, the Count reportedly rubbed elbows with many French elites, including Voltaire. It was actually through the King's famed mistress, Madame de Pompadour, that the Count was introduced to His Majesty. There are even letters that exist between the Count of St. Germain and none other than Ben Franklin. Whereas there doesn't seem to be any doubt that the Count was a real person, 
The question remains whether the man was immortal or not. He was coy about his background. He often dropped hints to people that he was centuries old, and he would sometimes refer to events from the distant past as if he had been there. In fact, some visitors to the French court insisted they had met the Count decades earlier. Only he appeared to be the exact same age even then. One story tells of the elderly Countess of Georgie, who attended a performance by the Count in Versailles around 1760. The Count wowed the crowd with his masterful violin technique, but throughout the performance the Countess of Georgie remained silent, studying the man intently. After he was done playing, the Countess asked the Comte de Saint-Germain if his father had been in Vienna back in 1710, for she had met a man back then who bore a remarkable resemblance to him. The Count told her that no, his father had died long, long ago, and that it had been he that the Countess had met with when she was young. The Countess scoffed at this. The man she had met had been around 40 years old, she said. The Count merely smiled and said, Madame, I am very old. Then he went on to offer her proof by recounting several details from that meeting decades earlier. Now, of course, a lot of this sounds fake. In fact, it's known that an English comedian known as Milord Gower actually impersonated the Count in Paris salons. There, he'd often tell stories that exaggerated those told by the Count, things like he'd advise Jesus. It's likely some of these stories helped build the legend of the Count of St. Germain. But there are many details about the Count of St. Germain that are difficult to completely discredit, based on some rather credible sources. Between 1756 and 1763, the Seven Years' War spanned multiple continents. This war was a conflict between several European countries that made it as far as Africa and the Americas. In 1760, during the height of the war, the Count of St. Germain traveled to The Hague, ostensibly under the pretext of borrowing money for Louis XV with diamonds as collateral. This was not entirely accurate. In fact, it's unlikely the king even knew of the count's travels at all. In actuality, he tried to open secret peace negotiations behind the king's back between Britain and France. However, Britain would not deal with St. Germain unless his orders came directly from King Louis himself. The Duc de Choiseul smelled a rat and convinced King Louis XV to disavow the Count and order his arrest. But the Dutch didn't want to get involved in all this French political intrigue, and instead of arresting the Count, they gave him a blank passport and sent him on his merry way. Stories abound of the Count's globetrotting activities after this. One difficult-to-verify tale even says that he was present at the signing of the Declaration of Independence in 1776, and that he gave a stirring speech in Independence Hall that helped rally the signers together. Although that last story is difficult to confirm, what we do know is that the Count continued traveling throughout Europe over the next few years. He was sighted at different times in Berlin, Vienna, Milan, Amsterdam, and Venice, among others. In 1763, the Count turned up in Belgium using the name Sermont. There he purchased a plot of land and set up a lab where he planned on selling some of the chemical dye processes he came up with to the government of Belgium. In 1779, he arrived in Altona in Schleswig. It was there that he became friends with Prince Charles of Hesse-Kassel. The prince had an interest in mysticism and was a member of several secret societies. This is something he appeared to have in common with the Count of St. Germain. The Count is often cited as being a member of a great many secret societies that are legendary in conspiracy circles. Groups such as the Rosicrucians, in fact one story about the Count claims that the Count of St. Germain was really Christian Rosenkreutz, the founder of the Rosicrucian Brotherhood, 
He's also been tied into such legendary groups as the Illuminati, the Freemasons, and the Knights Templar. Prince Charles was so impressed with the Count's abilities with colored dyes and gemology that he set him up in a lab built in an abandoned factory at Eckertforg. The prince would later write in his letters that the Count felt close enough to him to confide in him his secrets. The Count told him that he was really the son of the Transylvania Prince Ferenc Rokasi, and that he was 88 years of age when he arrived in Schleswig. Prince Rogosi led a Hungarian revolt against the Curic Empire. He's considered a national hero of Hungary, and there are statues of him that still exist today. In this version of events, the prince faked his young son's death in order to protect him during this conflict. He was sent to Italy and raised by the Medici family, who educated him in the finest schools. Officially, the Count of St. Germain died on February 27, 1784. Records exist of both his death and burial in the register of the St. Nikolai Church in Eckernford. It should be noted that Prince Charles was not in the area at the time of the Count's death or burial. After his reported death, the estate the Count left behind was not exactly that of a wealthy man either. He only left behind a stack of paid bills, a small amount of money, several items of clothing, and various sundries. But there was no sign of the extensive gold and jewelry he was known for. Now, Keep in mind, if the Count really was 88 years old when he arrived in Schleswig, that's pretty unusual in and of itself. At that time, the average life expectancy was around 35 to 40, and someone who made it into his 80s or 90s would have been considered ancient. But it's the stories that persist of encounters with the Count after his alleged death that really make you wonder whether he might have been immortal or not. In 1785, the year after his supposed demise, St. Germain was seen in Germany with Anton Mesmer, the man credited with inventing hypnotism. In fact, some legends go that it was the Count himself who taught the art of hypnotism to Mesmer. Official records for the Order of the Freemasons showed that they actually chose St. Germain as their representative for a convention in 1785. The self-styled magician and occultist Count Alessandro di Cagliostro claimed to have seen the Count in person at the convention, and even performed an initiation ritual for Templars with him. In 1789, the Comtesse de Adamar claimed to have had a lengthy conversation with the Count de St. Germain, he allegedly told her of France's future in the wake of the upcoming French Revolution. He had tried sending a letter to King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette that their imminent demise was coming, but the letter was never acted upon, and it's unclear if it ever reached them. The Comtesse d'Adamar would claim to have seen the Count again on several other occasions, all the way up to the year 1820, during which he always appeared to be the same age. The next major sighting of the Count occurred in 1860 when the famous English poet, playwright, and politician Edward Bulwer Lytton claimed to have met him. In 1867, the Count was seen again at a meeting for the Grand Lodge of Freemasons in Milan. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. In 1870, Napoleon III, the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, became so interested in the stories of the Undying Count that he put together a task force to collect information on the man. The commission was stationed at the Hotel de Ville, which mysteriously caught fire the following year, destroying all their records. 
1896, the world-famous theosophist Madame Helena Blavatsky claimed to have personally met the Count decades earlier and remained in contact with him ever since. The theosophical movement is one that is often tied to both the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons. Their beliefs hold that there is a deeper spiritual reality that can be attained through a combination of meditation and other metaphysical practices. The theosophists would come to believe that the Count was actually an elevated spiritual master, and it was through his ascendancy that he had actually achieved his immortality. By now you have to be wondering how many of these sightings can be believed. Keep in mind, by the time he was being sighted in the mid to late 19th century, anyone who would have known him back in the day personally would have been long dead. Some theories about his longevity say that either all these people were mistaken about the identity of the person they claimed to have met, or perhaps the identity of the Count of St. Germain was something that fans of the movie The Princess Bride would be familiar with. One popular theory goes that the identity of the Count of St. Germain is like that of the Dread Pirate Roberts from the movie, and that the name and identity is handed down over generations to different people. But that's not the only theory, of course. Some people claim that the Count was the wandering Jew from the Bible, cursed to live on until Jesus returns to Earth. Others say that he possessed the mythical Philosopher's Stone, the most legendary artifact in the history of alchemy, and that this artifact allowed him to live forever. There's yet another story about him that seems to harken directly back to the idea that he might have been the son of a Transylvanian prince, as you'll hear. Back in the early 1900s, so the story goes, a mysterious man arrived in New Orleans using the name Jacques St. Germain. He was a huge hit among New Orleans society. He was mysterious and handsome, and seemed like he was worth a fortune. He took up residence at a house on Royal Street, and he was often seen strolling through the French Quarter in the company of any number of beautiful women. He threw lavish parties, and he often entertained his guests with wild stories of his adventures throughout Europe and Africa. He was also something of a history buff, and could often recount stories from history like he had been an eyewitness to them. He often made wild claims of conversations he'd had with people like Cleopatra and the Queen of Sheba. He claimed to be a direct descendant of the original Comte de Saint-Germain. His claims, of course, aroused skepticism, but there was no denying the man's close resemblance to portraits of the Count that were painted back in the 18th century. Rumors began to fly that he might actually be the Count, although no one could properly explain how this could be. Whatever the answer, Jacques Saint-Germain seemed to relish the air of mystery that rose around him. But all the rumors surrounding the Count took a dark turn when several months after his arrival in New Orleans, police were called to Saint-Germain's home on Royal Street over reports of a disturbance involving a woman who had fallen from the upper balcony of his home. The woman was rumored to be a sex worker, and although passers-by claimed she had fallen from the balcony, the terrified woman hysterically told police that she had jumped in order to escape Saint-Germain. You see, Jacques Saint-Germain had attacked her and bitten her on the neck. She sobbed and told police she had only been able to escape her attacker when someone knocked on the door, giving her time to jump out a window. They took the hysterical woman to the hospital, but evidently the police weren't very quick to believe her wild story about such an upstanding citizen as Saint-Germain. Because they told the Count to come into the police station the following morning to make a formal statement. Only Saint-Germain never showed up and when officers went to his home to collect him, they discovered that he had fled. It's what else they found inside the house that made them reconsider their opinion of the mysterious Jacques St. Germain. Upstairs they found a collection of open but corked wine bottles, 
Upon closer inspection, they discovered that each of these bottles was filled with a quantity of human blood. Of course, we have to take such stories as being apocryphal and may have simply come out of people wanting to associate Transylvania with vampires. There are still other stories that claim the man was a time traveler, which, being the Doctor Who fan that I am, personally appeals to me. Time travel would also explain the man's seeming knowledge of future events. One curious sighting of a man some people purport to be the Count of St. Germain occurred in August 1914 during World War I. Two Bavarian soldiers captured a Jewish-looking man in Alsace. They interrogated the man all night, but he stubbornly refused to give his name. Sometime in the early morning hours, the prisoner began to rant about the futility of the war. He told them they should just throw down their arms now. He said that after the war was over, there would be so much money that it would become essentially worthless, and people would be throwing it from their windows. The soldiers scoffed at these predictions, although some of the hardcore believers in the Count's legend say that this was in reference to the rampant inflation in Germany that followed World War I. There was a time when German currency was so worthless people were actually burning paper bills to stay warm. It was what the prisoner said next that really cemented some people's beliefs that this was the Counter St. Germain and that he had special knowledge of the future. The prisoner allegedly told his captors that following the period when the money would flow like confetti would come the Antichrist. This particular tyrant would rise from the lower classes and he would wear an ancient symbol. It would lead Germany into another world war in 1939, but would be defeated six years later after committing unspeakable acts. The Bavarian soldiers thought the man was clearly mad and took pity on him. They let him go and never saw him again. The Count would be seen again a few more times in New York, France, and elsewhere throughout the 1920s. Many of these sightings seemed tied into the flourishing occult movement that was going on during that time. In August 1930, a man named Guy Ballard claimed to have run into the Count while hiking near California's Mount Shasta, a location that has often been tied with assorted mystical events. In 1945, a man reportedly met an individual who went by the name Marcus S. Garman at another legendary location that is often tied into conspiracy circles. It was at a meeting at Bohemian Grove, an annual meeting of the wealthy and powerful in California, it was during this particular meeting in which the top-secret Manhattan Project was allegedly discussed. During the 1960s, there was yet another alleged sighting of the Count of St. Germain at a meeting of the Bilderberg Group, yet another infamous name in conspiracy lore. So who was, or should we say is, the Count of St. Germain? Well, your guess is as good as mine. The trouble with the story of the Count of St. Germain is that it has become so woven with other stories, legends, and hyperbole it's impossible to completely separate fact from fantasy. It does appear that there really was an individual everyone identified as the Count back during the 18th century. But was he immortal? Of course, that's a big pill to swallow. Being immortal would help explain how he became so talented in so many different areas. Keep in mind, while Voltaire and Casanova both wrote about the Count of St. Germain, they didn't always have the nicest things to say about him either. In fact, both of them openly mocked the man for all his wild claims. While historical records seem to corroborate the Count of St. Germain's existence during the mid-1700s, there are some people who believe he may have been around a lot earlier than that, and was actually at the crucifixion of Christ. Of course, the simplest solution is that he was a charlatan and a compulsive liar who managed to ingratiate himself with French high society. But if any of the stories could be believed, then it would also make him probably the most talented compulsive liar in history. 
The fact of the matter is, short of the Count of St. Germain appearing on TV and revealing himself to the world, I doubt we'll ever know the truth. But then again, something like that really happened too. One of the most recent major stories involving the Count of St. Germain occurred in the mid-1970s, when a man named Richard Chanfray appeared on television purporting to be the Count. In order to prove himself, he even appeared to change lead into gold live on camera. Although evidence points to Richard Chanfray being a fraud, even the man's suicide in 1983 spawned its own legend, when it was claimed that the man's body disappeared, leaving only a suicide note behind. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. I want to give a big shout-out to my latest Patreon supporters. Big thanks need to go to Josh, Teresa, Damian, Dave, and Jennifer for all your support. Your support is such a huge help. It pays for research materials, upgrading my equipment, web hosting, and all the other things that keep the show going. I couldn't do it without you. Just a reminder, patrons get access to all sorts of bonuses like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes. Another great way you can help support the show and boost us higher in the podcast rankings is by subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, we're also on Stitcher, Google Play, and your favorite podcast app. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. If you want to drop me a line, you can always reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram, or just send me an email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join us again next time.